the coronavirus is 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 the common cold. No, nope. no, it's not. It is probably is a Chicom laboratory experiment in the process of being weaponized. Nope, that's not true either, Rush Limbaugh. But thanks. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Here I am. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the Bradcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. Palinville, New York's WLPP, in Grand Rapids on WPRR, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, in Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ, in Seattle on KODX, in Janesville, Wisconsin on WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for you. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow... Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. And as we like to keep you up to date on the very latest reported election results, we got some breaking news for you, Desi Doyen. Oh, breaking goody. election result news. Okie doke. Pete Buttigieg has won Iowa. <laughs> No, sh- that's breaking. Sure, it was three weeks ago, but it actually is breaking news today. And, of course, it also presumes that one sees the quote-unquote winner of Iowa to be the one who received the most delegates out of Iowa, which is strictly true, even if Bernie Sanders won uh, the most votes in the Hawkeye state. So here is the breaking news last night, courtesy of Pat Reinerd at the Iowa starting line. He writes, the final Iowa caucus results are finally final. Boot, uh, Pete Buttigieg has won. Last night, the Iowa Democratic Party released the results of the recount requested by Bernie Sanders and Pete Buttigieg's campaign for 23 precincts. That came after each had requested a re-canvas of those precincts. The state party found that, uh, let's see, 19 results at the county delegate level were changed, but overall it only slightly changed things in favor of Buttigieg, who already had an extremely narrow lead. The final state delegate equivalent totals, <laughs> whatever state delegate uh, equivalent totals actually mean, are, you ready? Write this down. Buttigieg has 562 Point nine five four, and Bernie Sanders has five hundred and sixty-two point zero two one state delegate equivalents. 
Reinhardt writes, compared to the most recent numbers following the re-canvas, it appears that both candidates lost a small fraction of SDEs, or state delegate equivalents. So they both actually lost fractions of the uh, state delegate equivalents when all was said and done. It changes uh, Buttigieg's initial 0.003% victory <laughs> uh-huh. after the recanvas to a commanding 0.04% win now. Yes. Got it? Indeed, commanding. Yes. So that means, uh, in fact, that uh, Buttigieg will maintain a national delegate lead. This is the national delegate lead. They somehow they tra- they do their Iowa magic and they change the uh, state delegate equivalents into national delegates. And that means he has a lead of two in Iowa. Mayor Pete will have 14 national delegates to Bernie Sanders, 12, because the statewide win also gives one delegate to whoever wins the state. That's uh, Buttigieg in this case. So 14 to 12 is the final results coming out of Iowa. Well, I'm glad we got that settled. The uh, state uh, central committee still has to certify that over the weekend. Uh, And yes, Sanders leads in the popular vote on both the first and second alignments in that caucus. Those were never in question. He led by about 6,100 votes on the first uh, alignment and then 2,500 votes on the second. It was only the math of how votes are turned into state delegate equivalents. Uh, which determines the number of national delegates. That was the only thing that was ever in question. See, told you it would all be sorted out because the entire caucus process is entirely public, even if the math is ridiculously complex. Um, So that's how that breaks down. That's how Iowa breaks down. Uh, Previously, Iowa Democrats uh, conducted a re-canvas of dozens of precincts at the request of both campaigns in which they corrected some of those data entry errors. Uh, And in truth, as Reinerd reports, um, even without the failure of that smartphone app and then the uh, monkey wrenching of the uh, phone hotline, by uh, right-wing Trump fans, uh, it, Reinhardt argues, would probably have still taken just as long to figure out who actually won and lost because it was so close between Sanders and Buttigieg when it came to the delegate math. And so complex. But hey, it was all done in public, like you say, so we could go through step by step into granular detail, which obviously they did. Uh, Do you want me to do that? Because I could do it. I could do it right here. Thank you, but no. No? Okay. Anyway, yeah, so that's uh, that's Iowa. Now we can move on, right? In other breaking news, the coronavirus helped along in no small part by the Trump administration's bumbling and incompetent response now appears to be breaking the world and uh, the U.S. economy at the same time. The Dow Jones Industrial Average on Friday dropped nearly a thousand points at the morning's open. By day's end, it rebounded, uh, losing only about, I say only, about 350 points after the Fed signaled it may uh, ease interest rates to try and goose the spooked markets in light of the uh, panic over the coronavirus. Nonetheless, this was the seventh straight day of losses on Friday for the market, totaling a more than 3,500 point drop, amounting to the worst week for Wall Street since the 2008 global financial meltdown. 
According to Sentiment Trade, this is the fastest that the S&P 500 has wiped out four months of gains completely since 1928. Huh, what happened in 1928? Desi Doyen, do you have oh, any nothing. memory? nothing. It was of, a fantastic yeah, year as far as I Is that I right? Okay, yeah. <laughs> So anyway, that uh, that record, by the way, tied with the 1986 when the S&P 500 subsequently went on thereafter to rally 10 percent over the next three months. That could happen again here, maybe, depending on how the Trump administration uh, uh, responds to all of this. They certainly hope that happens. They are certainly doing everything they can to make it happen. But, you know, if they were half as concerned about Americans getting sick and dying from the coronavirus as they seem to be about the stock market getting sick and dropping, well, that might be even nicer. The spread of COVID-19, as the as the disease is formerly known, is unsettling supply change, uh, chains. It's sapping sales of some products. It's throwing travel into chaos. It's freaking out the markets and intensifying fears of a global recession, according to Jen Kirby over at Fox. But there is still so much we do not know about the coronavirus, which makes the potential economic fallout extremely uncertain. She asks, so how deep, lasting or widespread uh, any economic strain will be? Well, that, she says, is still hard to predict. It's a potential threat to the global economy as it goes on longer, according to Rohan Williamson, a professor of finance at Georgetown University. Supply chains can deal with disruptions for a few weeks, relying on supplies that they have saved in-house. But if it continues past that, he said it becomes a little more troubling. As of February 27, China has uh, now uh, said they have more than 82,000 confirmed cases. The virus has now spread, however, to other parts of Asia, to Europe, South America, and the U.S., as well, I think, Mexico, just before we went on air today. More than 2,000 people have died, most in mainland China, which was the epicenter of the outbreak. The coronavirus could prove to be deadlier than it currently is. The fatality rate is around uh, 2%, but that could change. It could also prove to be the opposite. If more people are found to have mild cases, government intervention could dull the effects in populations, but a bungled response could do the opposite. I wonder which one we'll get. Basically, stock market investors, she writes, are predicting that the coronavirus will continue to spread and cause more disruptions, depress demand and maybe cause a global slowdown. Right now, investors do not know that this is going to happen. No one does, but they are preparing as if it will happen and reacting to fears right now. Uh, on the other hand, she says, if good news starts breaking, then it could swing in the other direction once again. Nobody knows. Investors are preparing for the worst, and some companies and analysts have changed their forecasts for earnings this year. For example, Goldman Sachs revised earnings uh, estimates to zero for U.S. companies this year. They said that the uh, companies will generate no earnings in 2020, according to the uh, Goldman Sachs uh, chief U.S. equity strategist. He said we've updated our earnings model to incorporate the likelihood that the virus becomes widespread. 
Everyone wants to know if the new coronavirus will cause a global recession. The short answer to that is it definitely could, even if nobody knows how bad it would or wouldn't be. Experts that Vox.com spoke to caution that if governments respond appropriately and this outbreak is blunted, that the worst case scenario will probably, probably be avoided. Feel better? Not much. And if the uh, world gets the uh, best case scenario and this outbreak is resolved within the coming weeks, a bounce back in the markets and the economies might mitigate some of the worst effects from the uh, from the start of this year, most of which uh, all of the gains from the first of the year have now pretty much been wiped out. Meanwhile, right wing media and therefore Republicans continue to downplay the concerns about the coronavirus as little more than uh, liberal media and Democrat caused political opportunism. That's all this is. This is only about attacking Donald Trump. Nothing to worry about. For example, Rush Limbaugh. He tarred the media as the villain in this matter, saying on his uh, program that the media's coverage of the virus was, quote, an effort to get Trump and to spook investors. And during that same broadcast to his tens of millions of listeners over our publicly owned airwaves, Limbaugh repeated conspiracy uh, theories that the virus was engineered by the Chinese as a bioweapon. But then, seemingly contradicting himself in the very same show, he said the coronavirus is just the common cold, folks. It's just the common cold. Nobody expects so, consistency from Rush Limbaugh. Yes. And I'm sure even his listeners didn't even notice. It's a bioweapon created by China, who I guess secretly created... The common cold. Uh, in any event, experts say that is not the case. That Gosh, it is, you think? That it is not a CHICOM uh, bioweapon, nor is it just the common cold. Early reports suggest, as I said, about 2% of those who contract the coronavirus die of it. But And 2% doesn't sound like much, but that's actually 20 times more lethal than the flu. And if that is true, yes, this could be very bad. The CDC uh, estimates that the flu killed about 34,000 people in the U.S. during the 2018-2019 flu season. 34,000 people. If the coronavirus spreads as easily as the flu, and if, in fact, it is 20 times uh, more deadly than the flu, that would amount to 680,000 deaths in the U.S., so, no, not the common cold, folks, uh, but that is the kind of disinformation that is allowed to go over our public airwaves these days. Again, radio is owned by the public. The airwaves are owned by the public. But right-wing corporations have been allowed to capture the public airwaves uh, and use it 24-7 for Republican propaganda over virtually every publicly owned and licensed radio frequency in the nation. If you are listening to me on air, you are one of the few people in the country who are doing that. Meanwhile, everyone else is hearing that this is nothing but an effort to get Donald Trump, and it's just the common cold, folks. 
By the way, over those same public airwaves, uh, Limbaugh also connected the virus to Bernie Sanders, telling his, what, 15 or 20 million listeners over our public airwaves across the entirety of the country, quote, there's no question that Bernie Sanders poses a far greater threat to this country than the coronavirus. The Democrat Party, he said, as it's currently constituted, poses a much greater threat to this country than the coronavirus does. And you can quote me on that, he said. So, again, if this spreads as the flu does, it could kill 680,000 Americans this year. But somehow Democrats and Bernie Sanders are a greater threat to Americans than the coronavirus, according to Rush Limbaugh, over our public airwaves with nobody there to correct him. <laughs> and by the way, if you do want to blame the Democrats for something, you can blame them for allowing guys like uh, Rush Limbaugh and uh, pick your right winger for allowing corporations to take over our public airwaves and put those lying propaganda spewing right wingers on our public airwaves that are owned by the public and uh, should not be abused this way to twist the brains of the American people. Because before you know it, if they keep doing that year after year, you're going to elect someone like Donald Trump. And then look what could happen. All right, let's take a quick break here. Uh, we, we will use our public airwaves to inform rather than disinform. You're welcome, as always. And to that end, uh, some good news, mostly, from, uh, from the courts, actually, in recent weeks on the right to vote, which we will need in order to do anything about these continuing nightmares. The great Mark Joseph Stern of Slate.com returns to the broadcast after a ridiculously long absence. Right after this, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. In my mind, I'm gone to Carolina. I am. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. We will have full reported results of the South Carolina primary on our next broadcast, which will rely on 100% unverifiable touchscreen votes cast across the entire state on brand new touchscreen voting systems if they worked as planned. And I hope uh, someone has figured out how to disinfect them so the touchscreen voting machines don't turn into great big coronavirus machines, in case you were looking for yet another reason why touchscreen voting is a terrible idea in every regard. 
But as the primary elections are now underway, we have been discussing how folks are voting this year, with about a third of the country using unverifiable touchscreens. But we have spent less time of late discussing whether some voters will be allowed to vote at all. We did discuss several good news court rulings in Florida and North Carolina recently. In North Carolina, where both a federal judge and a state appeals court has all but blocked the possibility of the GOP's zombie never-say-die effort to institute polling place photo ID voting restrictions which uh, the courts found to be disproportionately uh, disenfranchising for minority voters, just as North Carolina's original effort at this from back in 2013 was found. They have been trying again year after year after year to pass this law. The 2013 version was nixed by a federal court, which found the law had, quote, targeted African-Americans with surgical precision and was meant to, quote, impose cures for problems that did not exist. So at least for now, some good news in North Carolina. It does not look like that photo ID restriction will be in place this year at all, we think. In Florida, also some good news. The fight there is against the GOP legislature and uh, Republican governor's new law that essentially guts state constitutional amendment four, which was passed in 2018 statewide by a landslide 65 percent of the vote to restore voting rights to more than one and a half million former felons in the Sunshine State. And that's also uh, about 20 percent of the black male voting population there. After the amendment was adopted by voters, the Republicans then went to work to pass a law that requires all former felons to have paid off all court-imposed fines and fees before they would be allowed to vote, which a federal appeals court now has rejected because it allows wealthy former felons to vote, while those too poor to pay the fees are prevented from voting. The same exact crime, therefore, uh, has a different punishment depending on how wealthy the former criminal now is. The ex-felons who successfully, so far anyway, filed that case, likened the new law to a poll tax. And so far, the courts are agreeing with them. But there have been several other similar cases working their way through courts around the country as Republicans attempt to prevent people, certain people, from voting at all. In now what appears to be a core value for the Republican Party itself, voter suppression. Thankfully, however, at least for now, both state courts and Article III federal courts seem to be holding back many of those efforts. But of course, we'll see how many of those favorable rulings we're seeing of late are changed by the Republicans' stolen majority on the U.S. Supreme Court between now and the November general election, if some of these ca- cases make them uh, make their way there. Well, it's been seemingly forever since we spoke to, uh, with him. The great Mark Joseph Stern, who covers the law, the court system, the U.S. Supreme Court, and much more, including, yes, voting rights cases at Slate.com. Oh, I'm so happy he's back. He joins us now for a long overdue return to the broadcast. Mark Joseph Stern, welcome back, my friend. We have missed you muchly. 
Thank you so much. It has been such a sad winter for me yes. without you. Yes. I don't know how I've held on this long. I couldn't have made it a day further, so well, I'm very happy to be back. The uh, uh, the feeling is mutual, my friend. We have barely made it, but we've got this far, so let's keep going. i got a lot I want to try to fly through with you today in a short time uh, from stories that you have been covering in recent weeks on this beat, but uh, due to things like, you know, oh, the impeachment of the president of the United States, the Democratic Democratic presidential debates, primary and caucus elections. We haven't had time to uh, share your work with our listeners, so I hope to make up for that today. First, I quickly mentioned the very good victory, I, as I see it, from the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals uh, in Florida, blocking the Republicans' attempt to gut Amendment 4 with what really seems to be a little more than a poll tax for those who can't afford to vote you know, the ones who can get to, those who can't afford it, don't. Uh, is that the right way to describe uh, that law and that federal court's ruling a week or so ago? Yes, absolutely. And there's really no other accurate way to describe what Florida Republicans tried to do here. I would note that the uh, panel of judges who issued this ruling unanimously was not a, a far-left panel by any means. Mm -hmm. These were moderate, even right-leaning judges. Uh, but they looked at what Republicans did, and they said, you know, this law is not just uh, a basic kind of you have to serve out your sentence before you can vote again kind of thing. This law is creating two different classes of former felons, of formerly incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. There's the one class of rich people who can pay off all of their fines and fees easily, right? Mm -hmm. Because Florida imposes a ton of these. You have to pay a fee just to apply for a public defender. You mm. have to pay a fee to get your license back. You have to get a fee to get your own urine tested for drugs. So people leave prison with thousands of dollars in, mm. in these fines and fees racked up in Florida. And if you're wealthy, that's no big deal. You pay off your fines and fees and the state says, great, now you get to have your voting rights back. But if you're poor and you're saddled by these fines and fees, and by the way, almost everyone is, about 80% of ex-felons in Florida never pay off this money, then you don't get to vote. Mm. You just don't get access to the ballot. Yep. And what the panel said was, this is not just wealth discrimination. This is wealth discrimination uh, conditioning a fundamental right the right to vote on your ability to pay. That is, as you said at the beginning, a poll tax, and we just do not have those in the United States. So good news that this has been for now struck down, but this was a three-judge panel on this federal uh, 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. The state of Florida can still ask for a ruling, I think they may have already, from the full 11th Circuit Court on bank. Then they could appeal to the GOP's stolen U.S. Supreme Court. Do you expect either or both of those uh, will occur in this case? And will the state of Florida have any better luck in either of those appeals if they happen? So the, the, the Florida governor immediately said, I'm going to appeal this to the full court en banc. Mm -hmm. And Donald Trump has actually flipped that court to a majority of Republican appointees. Mm -hmm. But due to a very technical rule that I, I don't want to get into too much, the, the judges who sat on that panel, who are uh, taking senior status, mm -hmm. who are no longer active judges, 
they would get to sit on the full court if it reheard the case. Mm-hmm. And that would sort of cancel out the newer Trump appointees, and hopefully it would allow the, the earlier decision to stand. Mm. Uh, but no matter what happens on Bonk, right, no mm-hmm. matter what happens when the full court convenes, we know that Florida is going to take this case to the Supreme Court. And we know that with that stolen seat and with Justice Kavanaugh in Kennedy's old seat, that there are five justices who are extremely hostile to the right to vote, who are extremely sympathetic to states that want to suppress that right, uh, whether blatantly or subtly. And so I am not at all optimistic that if this case gets to the Supreme Court, that a majority of justices will uphold it. Maybe some justices will just say, we don't want to hear this case and Mm -hmm. let this one pass. But I really cannot see John Roberts providing the fifth vote to let poor former felons in Florida cast a ballot. But all of this, of course, is running up against the clock with uh, Florida having primaries coming up and then, of course, the general election in November. So, Mark Joseph Stern, now may be a good time, uh, if you don't mind, to quickly explain the Purcell principle, since I suspect it will be coming into play once again this year. It always does during election years. In this case, perhaps, and, and many other voting-related uh, cases. So can, can you explain what that principle is very generally? Yes, it's a terrible rule that is applied very inconsistently that says that courts should not modify election laws in any way when an election is impending. So if there's an election right around the corner and a court thinks that a law might be unconstitutional, it is not supposed to block that law, even if it's illegal, because it could throw the election into disarray. That's the theory, at least. Mm -hmm. What actually ends up happening here is that the Supreme Court's conservatives will let voter suppression laws take effect at any point before the election, (laughs) but they will block lower court rulings that expand the right to vote and and cite the Purcell principle. So it's it's really uh, inconsistently applied, but the idea is that the closer we get to these elections, the less courts should be intervening and issuing any rulings at all. So in this case, are are we now close enough to an election that uh, whatever ruling comes down from the lower lower court should stay in place in Florida? Or, like you say, is this just... uh, they decide when they wish to enforce this uh, this uh, Purcell rule and when they don't. Well, I think that this case could be a good illustration of why this principle is, is so um, silly and inconsistently applied. You would think that what the Supreme Court would say is, yes, okay, this, this decision came down, ex-felons have the right to vote if they can't afford to pay their fines and fees. We're not going to touch it. We're just going to leave that ruling in place for the election and maybe revisit it later. Mm-hmm. But what the court often ends up doing in these situations is is criticizing the lower court for issuing a ruling at all mm-hmm. and, mod- and basically blocking or modifying that ruling so that it can't take effect. So everyone is all confused. People say, wait, there was a ruling, but then the Supreme Court blocked it. But what about what the lower court court said is there's still an injunction in place and everyone is in total chaos. So, you know, it's very difficult to make a prediction about what, if anything, SCOTUS would do here. But if it applied the Purcell principle with any consistency, then it would just step back Mm -hmm. and let this decision stay the law of the land until the primaries are over. But of course, they don't apply it with consistency. So it's anyone's guess, I think, at this point, what's going to happen there. But for the moment, anyway, some good news out of the state of Florida 
which is something you don't hear very often. So we'll uh, celebrate that for the moment until it changes. Uh, moving on then to Arizona. Well, Mark, I was going to ask you if you thought that my allegation in the opening there that uh, voter suppression is now a core value of the Republican Party, if that goes too far. But then uh, given the lead here of your uh, uh, this story about a federal court ruling in Arizona, a voter suppression case there. I'm guessing you probably agree with me. Let me just share your opening. You said the national conversation around voting rights is deeply skewed. Republican lawmakers and operatives openly endorse disenfranchisement. They brag when their attacks on suffrage succeed and they work feverishly to rig redistricting in favor of white people. But all too often, judges refuse to acknowledge the racism of voter suppression laws dancing around the purposes of these measures only rarely will a court admit what every reasonable observer should already know the disproportionate impact of these laws on minority voters is no coincidence it is exactly what legislatures legislators intended well in this ninth circuit ruling in the arizona case mark you note that the court sided with the challengers in this case, it was uh, the, the plaintiffs, that would be the DNC in this case, because they found the matter in question to be flat out racist, as you describe it. D- is, explain, uh, explain this uh, case as well as you can and, and how, the, uh, how the court just out and out said, no, this one is racism. Yes, and, and, you know, let's preface this by saying, once again, the Supreme Court is always looming over these cases. Yes. Um, but this was an incredible victory for, uh, for voting rights and for reality, because <laughs> what happened here, and you may remember this, is mm-hmm. that Arizona has a system where uh, basically volunteers can go pick up people's mail-in ballots and mm-hmm. drop them off with election officials. There is literally no evidence that anyone has ever abused this method of voting, which is extremely popular among Arizona's Latino population and basically unused among Arizona's white population. For whatever reason, it doesn't really matter. Latinos prefer to vote in this method by passing along their ballot to a trusted volunteer or advocate or friend to turn it in, and white people like to mail it in themselves or show up at the polls. Arizona's legislature, controlled by Republicans, Mm -hmm. looked at this and said, hey, you know what we would like to do? We would like to prohibit any volunteer or advocate from ever picking up someone else's ballot and turning it in for them. Instead, what we would like to do is make it a crime to ever help someone else turn in their ballot, subject to prison time just for helping someone voting. And by the way, we're going to, we're going to try to pass this law by putting up these videos of Latino people uh, engaging in this perfectly lawful process mm-hmm. of voting, but claiming that they're actually criminals and thugs and undocumented aliens committing voter fraud. Nice. And what the court said was, look, you guys barely even pretended to have a neutral reason for this law. All you wanted to do was stop Hispanic people from casting ballots. Your entire campaign for this law was about vilifying Hispanic people. We are going to call a spade a spade. This law was motivated by racism. 
system, and it cannot stand. And this was uh, passed after, and I'm sure people have heard of this, heard of the Republicans complaining about, quote-unquote, ballot harvesting, like they're doing something illegal, like they're creating votes, like they're making, uh, you know, make them up, and it's, like you said, illegal immigrants who are voting. So they played this video over and over again on Fox News, naturally, showing, you know, a, a Latino-looking man dropping off a bunch of ballots at the county headquarters, and the GOP commentary was that this was somehow illegal. None of that was actually true. And did any of those ballots, uh, because it should be easy enough to find out, those ballots when they were turned in, were they unlawful ballots? Were they, uh, you know, cast by people who don't have the right to vote in the country? Nope. Nothing like that. Absolutely nothing like that. Totally lawful ballots. Hispanics engaged in their community, engaged in the franchise, being good citizens. To Republicans, that looks like voter fraud. Now, we should uh, remind people that uh, back in 2018, there was a problem with uh, absentee ballot collection. That was in North Carolina, that in the uh, 9th Congressional District there, where Republicans were unlawfully collecting ballots that had not been uh, signed or, or even sealed, and they were changing votes. They were signing it uh, unlawfully themselves in some cases. In other cases, they were just not turning in ballots that you know didn't go for the Republican, and that ended up resulting resulting in an, a, the a ninth congressional district race that was canceled. The election, the results were canceled. It had to be rerun in nine months. So, I, I mean, it kind of feels like these guys are projecting here, Mark. You know, they were doing something wrong with their ballot harvesting, but the things they were doing were already illegal, according to the law, as far as I understood it in, in North Carolina. This is a different case. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what, what North Carolina Republicans were doing there was running a fairly sophisticated voter fraud scheme that absolutely violated the law. I will note that it did not involve in-person uh, fraud. You know, mm-hmm. this was not uh, impersonation fraud. This was not people showing up at the polls and claiming to be someone who's dead, which Republicans are obsessed with, but right. which never actually happens. This was messing with absentee ballots. But as you said, that was already illegal in North North Carolina, and it was Republicans who were doing it. Right. Nothing of that sort is happening in Arizona. And there, no evidence of anything. And there was another part of this ruling in Arizona where the uh, court found it to be equally uh, uh, racially based or a racist policy. This uh, has to do with w- when people vote out of uh, their regular precinct and they're not found on the voter rolls, uh, so they have to vote with a provisional ballot. This doesn't happen everywhere. All the states have sort of different rules for this. But in Arizona, if you don't vote at your own precinct and if you have to vote on a provisional ballot, even if you are lawfully registered to vote, they will throw your provisional vote away just for voting in the wrong precinct? For voting in the wrong precinct, even if everything else is lawful about it, even if your actual polling place was a hundred yards away, your ballot will simply be nullified. Arizona does this uh, so much more than any other state on an exponential level. Like, no other state has laws nearly this strict. And what's fascinating, uh, and the the court put this in its ruling, you can look at maps, uh, for some reason or another, 
it turns out that Hispanic communities tend to have their precincts moved around constantly. One election cycle, it'll be in one location. The next election cycle, it'll be somewhere totally different. And Hispanic people are much more likely to be forced to vote at a precinct that is actually farther away from their house than a different precinct. So they will be told, you have to drive 10 miles to go vote, even though you could theoretically vote 10 feet away from your home. Mm. It's this crazy system that is all rigged against Hispanics and Native Americans and black people in Arizona. And the court said, you are not getting away with this any longer. And the court called it out as such, saying that this was meant as a racist policy, or at least has the effect of, uh, of, of a racist policy, because it... Massive racist yeah. impact on minority communities. And all of this, what we're dealing with in, uh, in Florida, I mentioned North Carolina, their photo ID laws, and now these cases in Arizona, all of this comes about after the Supreme Court in 2013, I think it was, gutted the Voting Rights Act that allowed states like Arizona to shut down these polling places without receiving federal approval first, correct? In other words, yeah. they would have had to get approval for this and they would have never been the, the policy would have never been put into place in theory had it been examined in advance before voters were disenfranchised by it. That's exactly right. And uh, ever since that terrible decision gutting the Voting Rights Act in 2013, Arizona has closed hundreds of polling places, and they have disproportionately, very disproportionately, been located in minority communities. And that would not have been able to happen if the Supreme Court hadn't issued that disastrous ruling and the VRA were still fully intact. So this is uh, this was an en banc ruling from the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It was... Uh, a seven to four in favor of the plaintiffs here. But once again, as you noted at the top, the uh, argument that it's <laughs> Supreme Court may may overturn it if they wish, just because on pretty much any basis they won at this point. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, <laughs> the court has enough votes to basically flick its wrists and just make every good decision disappear. But, you know, I think that it's notable that the, that the outcome here was so lopsided. And I think it's notable that the decision was, was written in a very comprehensive, thorough, meticulous manner. This was nothing close to a kind of, uh, oh, I think there might be some racism. Let's, you know, let's examine why Republicans might be doing this. It looks pretty racist. This was drilling down into the hard evidence drilling into the data here, looking at trends over the span of years, pulling out and examining individual statements made by a multitude of Republican lawmakers. This feels to me like a very difficult opinion to overturn, to reverse, um, because you would, you would basically have to come out and say that you don't believe racism exists anymore. Now, John Roberts has, That's what they has, did. has <laughs> essentially implied that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, again, like, I would at least love to see Roberts be confronted with the consequences of his own decision. Mm. You know, he said in, in Shelby County in the VRA case, oh, basically racism is over, it's done, you know, we've, we've moved on as a nation. Well, guess what happened after that, John Roberts? A massive amount of racism infected our election laws. He should, at a minimum, be forced to look at his handiwork and, and realize just how much his ruling has devastated this country. 
Or he could just invoke the Purcell principle, say, I don't want to look at it, and uh, overturn the lower courts, <laughs> and done right. deal. Uh, Mark, uh, Arizona and Florida, as we have already dis- already discussed, are closely divided battleground states. Both could flip blue this year. So these rulings that we've talked about, even if they only affect a few thousand ballots statewide, could end up being quite crucial for the entire country and uh, in a, you know, in a presidential race the way Arizona and Florida goes, could decide everything. But while those are battleground states, Missouri has not really been a battleground state, at least in presidential races for a long time, not since I left there as a kid when I was 16. Yes, I blame myself for what had been the nation's sort of most classic swing state uh, going pretty much, uh, you know, back then. Now it's pretty much completely red. But last month, there was a very good news. uh, There was very good news from voters in my old home state of Missouri from the state Supreme Court on a photo ID measure that Republicans have been trying and trying to adopt for, I think, well over a decade now, Mark. And the ruling from the court is not only good news on the photo ID law itself, but it also seems to have boomeranged against the Republicans in opening up another line of discrimination concern, I think, that I admit I haven't even thought about in in regard to photo ID. So let's start first with the main ruling from the court. Previous efforts to institute photo ID by the Missouri Republican legislature were nixed because of the Missouri state constitution, which disallows discriminatory voting laws, essentially. So the GOP got themselves a new constitutional amendment to take care of it, like they tried to do in North Carolina. How did that go for Missouri Republicans, Mark? Well, Missouri Republicans learned the lesson that North Carolina Republicans have learned, which is that if you don't control the state judiciary, you might still have to deal with the rule of law. Uh, The Missouri Supreme Court said, look, you know, we get that you have a voter ID permission in the Constitution, you've added that, but, you know, it, this law still has to comply with other provisions of the Constitution, right? Mm-hmm. And what, what Missouri Republicans did to implement that voter ID law was force voters who do not have uh, an official state or federal ID, so voters who basically can't present a passport or a driver's license, mm-hmm to put forward some other kind of identification, like a bank statement, and then sign this affidavit that I, I don't want to get into it too much, but it's basically contradictory, and it basically forces you to say that you do not have the identification that you are providing, which is, of course, nonsense. You do have some ID. It's just not the ID that Missouri wants. And if you sign this, you may be punished for perjury because it makes no sense and it's sort of so contradictory that no matter how you interpret it, you know, you just have to lie to vote. So you have to. And what the, yeah. what the Missouri Supreme Court says, you can't do that. You can't force people as a condition of voting to lie to sign this form that literally makes no sense under penalty of perjury and felony charges. You know, if you want to create a carve out, create a real carve out, but don't force these people into a position where they're afraid of being prosecuted for casting a ballot. So so basically, if you didn't have the very specific type of IDs that they uh, required to vote without uh, without a problem, you still had to show something else, like a bank statement or something, and then and then you had to sign an affidavit essentially saying, I don't have the type of ID needed for voting, even though 
you have just presented them with the type of ID that would yes. allow you to vote, right? Yes, so, absolutely. It's insane. Which is why you call it the Catch-22 voter ID law. So they threw. So I guess they're, they're throwing that out, uh, the state Supreme Court throwing that out. In this case, can they even go to the federal court? Can they go to the U.S. Supreme Court on this? No, because this was based solely on the Missouri Constitution, mm-hmm. uh, which, which guarantees equal protection and the right to vote in elections. And what the, what the court did was say, you know, you have this carve-out, but it doesn't make any sense. So we're going to strike it down. But if we only struck down the carve-out, then people would be in an equally bad position because they'd have to present either a license or a passport, and that wouldn't be constitutional either. So they struck down the entire law and forced the legislature to go back to the drawing board, which I think was absolutely the right move here. And again, because it's based on the state constitution, there's nothing a federal court can do to reverse it. So can uh, can the the, uh, state legislature get back to work and rewrite this law without this catch-22 language in time to make sure that they can disenfranchise voters by November? Well, I think they're probably going to try, but I think that the Missouri Supreme Court sent a really clear statement to say that even if you add some kind of a constitutional amendment allowing voter ID, again, that has to be to be uh, harmonious with the other guarantees of the Constitution. Uh, You don't just override all of the other guarantees, including the right to vote, because you say, yeah, under some circumstances, uh, uh, an ID can be necessary. So I hope that Republicans have learned their lesson and that they implement uh, the the kind of system that uh, some other sort of purple states have used, where, yes, you you can be forced to present an ID, but it can be a broad array of IDs, including student IDs, including expired IDs. And if you don't do that, you can sign an affidavit that actually makes sense, that confirms your identity uh, that you are held to. That system is still not ideal. We don't need voter ID, but at least people aren't forced into a catch-22. There was this other element of this ruling out of Missouri that I find absolutely fascinating, and I'm somewhat ashamed to admit that this is a form of uh, suppression that, frankly, had not occurred to me in the past. The judge, and it's kind of fun here because it seems like this whole scheme by Missouri Republicans has now boomeranged against them, at least in this uh, provision, because the judge found that a photo ID law in Missouri, pretty much any way you slice it, could end up disenfranchising trans voters entirely. Yes. Yes, trans voters and non-binary voters. And this is something that a lot of people, uh, even people engaged in this civil rights work, don't think about. So don't feel bad. Um, But, you know, there are a number of states where it is extremely difficult or even impossible for people who are transgender or non-binary or intersex to obtain an ID card from the state that actually reflects their real gender. And this case involved one individual, one plaintiff who sued, who simply could not obtain that ID card. And so if they were forced to uh, present an official ID at the polls to vote, they simply could not do it. They 
they would be prohibited from voting because they had no proper uh, identification. That's not their fault. That's the fault of these backward states that still make it way too difficult for, for LGBTQ people to get these identification cards. You know, this is a sort of separate issue that happens to intersect with voting rights. And what the Missouri court said was basically, at least until all transgender and non-binary people can easily obtain these IDs, or at least as easily as everybody else, we're going to be really skeptical of any kind of voter ID law that leaves them out in the cold, that for forces them to meet this high burden when some of them may be born in states that will simply not give them a corrected birth certificate and therefore bar them from ever updating their ID. And so in their case, it's not a matter of getting an ID. They can't get an ID right. that would would uh, would work here. Does this mean that uh, the matter is likely to show up in other similar challenges of these kinds of, uh, of photo ID laws? You know, after the Missouri Supreme Court has begun to sort of carve out this right, Will it have any effect in, in other states as well? Well, you know, this only pertains to Missouri, and it does only involve the Missouri Constitution. But I would love to see other courts really grapple with this issue, because it's not something that a lot of advocacy groups have worked on. I think it's still a relatively niche issue. But of course, everyone should be able to vote, including all LGBTQ people. And I hope that other courts, including federal district courts and other state courts, will, will put this in their arsenal when they are thinking about potential reasons why voter ID laws might be unconstitutional. You know, it's not only poor people and elderly people. There's also this whole broad swath of gender minorities who are literally never going to be able to vote under a strict voter ID regime. Mark, I've only got about a minute and a half left here, uh, and so I'm not going to do this one justice at all. But I do kind of want to send up a red flare, a red flag on this one, as you did in a story over at uh, Slate.com, where a a judge, a, a Donald Trump appointed judge, has essentially argued that voters should no longer have the right to uh, to file suit in Voting Rights Act cases. Do I read that correctly, and is it even possible to correct me if I didn't in the minute that we have left? Oh, no, I mean, you're <laughs> right. This is a totally insane dissent, arguing that voters should not be able to sue uh, states when states pass unconstitutional illegal voting laws, that when a, a state violates the Voting Rights Act, that individuals of that, who live in that state can't sue it to try to block those laws. Now, there would be ways around this. You could try to identify the individual government officials who are enforcing the law and try to haul them into court instead, but it would make the plaintiff's lives a a lot harder, and it would represent this kind of blow to the very principle embodied in the Voting Rights Act um, that people have this fundamental right that they can take directly into federal court and say, this state that I live in cannot do this to me. This state has to be held accountable for suppressing my right to vote. And according to this Trump-appointed judge, Mm -hmm. people don't even have that right. They can't even take on their state when their state tries to disenfranchise them. And for now, that's a a one Trump judge in a dissent, but there's a lot of new Trump judges uh, where uh, all across the country where uh, Mitch McConnell has packed the courts now, they are taking um, majorities on a lot of these appellate courts. So I expect we might see this argument again as it is now uh, mark the uh, voting rights act allows either affected voters or the u.s attorney general to file suit uh, right. right now uh, how many lawsuits has the donald trump u.s attorney generals filed so far 
In the that would years? mean zero. Zero. Zero Voting Rights hmm. Act lawsuits have been filed by the Trump administration. Hmm. Go figure. And then we'll just disallow the voters from being able to do it when the AG won't. Yes. Okay, this is all going well. Mark Joseph Stern, always great to catch up with you, my friend. Uh, Let's do it more frequently in the near future, pretty please. You can find his work at Slate.com. You can find him on the Twitters at MJS underscore DC. Thank you, Mark. Talk to you again soon. Thank you so much. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Okay, quick break, and we're back with oh, some news about our uh, our next Brad, our next two Bradcasts. Okie dokie. Don't uh, don't miss that. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com/slash/donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thank you. Well, don't call me anytime. Don't, <laughs> don't call me right now, but you can call me on Monday and Tuesday, Super Tuesday, live at 3 p.m., Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, if you're listening on kpfk.org, just in case we're not live in your listening area. I'll explain in a second, but let me start with commenter Kurt, who writes at bradblog.com in response to uh, our our previous show. He says, I'm not sure where to go with this issue as I'm currently out of the country. I am a resident of Los Angeles. Just before I left, I phoned the county to find out if I could vote by, if I could get my vote by mail ballot so I could cast my ballot before heading to the UK back on February 17. I'm a permanent vote by mail subscriber and have voted by mail in every local state and federal election since 2010. So imagine my surprise when I was told that my voter registration was inactive. What? Oh, boy. The county claims it mailed out postcards to all registered voters. And if it didn't receive a response, the voters registration was deactivated. Well, I didn't get a postcard. So I hope I'm not deactivated. I don't think I am. I received a vote by mail ballot, which I will be delivering in person. Kurt goes on to write, I told them I keep up with my mail. I never saw a postcard. After some wrangling, my voter registration was reinstated. But I fear that in addition to new voting machines and new voting centers, there has also been a scrubbing of the voter rolls that has not been made public. It is important that people check their voter registrations for currency. There is absolutely no reason for my voter registration to be deactivated, but yet it was, writes Kurt. Please spread the word. Well, consider it spread, Kurt. That said, for those Californians not out of the country anyway, even if they are knocked off the rolls for some reason, California now allows registration and even party switching right up to and on Election Day at the polls. So hopefully that will not cause too many problems, at least for those out here in California. That may not be true for many living in the other states holding uh, elections on Super Tuesday. But it's still a good reminder to check your registration frequently. Yes, please. So on our next program, live, uh, write it down, set an iPhone alarm or whatever, Monday, our next two programs, Monday and Tuesday, 
at 3 p.m. Pacific time, 6 p.m. Eastern time, I will try to open up the phones to hear from folks who have early voted before Super Tuesday in California and across the country regarding problems and concerns and uh, to answer any voting questions I can. Uh, if you don't get the, the broadcast live where you are, you can tune in to kpfk.org, as I said, Monday and Tuesday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific, and I'll give you the phone number to call us then. Uh, all right, that's it. we got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my yep. guest today, Slate's Mark Joseph Stern, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, Download it for free and share it with your friends and family at bradblog.com. While you're there, please consider hitting the donate button to help Desi and I stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. See you there. Until we see you here, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. 